0: This is The Thirst Time, presented by Track Brewing Company. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Thirst Time, the show that takes a deep dive into the careers and journeys of some of the most creative minds in the craft beer industry today. Today's episode, a little bit of a different one, We've been working closely with Yakima Chief. Um, for those that don't know, they are a hop provider um, and they actually are a collection of com- um, family-owned hop growers. Uh, it's a pretty amazing kind of cooperative, really. Uh, something that we hear more about in this episode, actually. And what we wanted to do was shine a light on some of the amazing producers that they work with. Um, and in this case, we are looking at Loza Farms and Perolt Farms. When Matt and Harry went out to hop harvest this year, they, they stopped off at both of these farms and were blown away by the, the, not only the hops that they were producing, but the people behind as well. Um, and as ever, there's just fascinating stories that, that come from all angles in this industry. So yeah, so it was my job to try and piece it all together and put it into an episode so you guys might get a sense of just what goes on um, and how it is and what it is to be, to be a hop farmer. Now, just a couple of notes here. Um, the production is gonna be maybe slightly different on this one because Tom, my friend who who helped put all of this together and has produced every episode, has just had a little baby. So congratulations, Tom. But that means <laughs> I'm trying to bother bother him as little as possible, which means that um yeah, I'm going I'm going for the production on this one. So if it's a little clanky, I apologize. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna do our best. Okay, so yeah, this is two episodes kind of sewn together to be one episode um, and it's highlighting the amazing work that goes on in the hop farms that provide the hops for the beers that you love and we love producing. Um, yeah, so let's get into it. You are listening to Track Brewing Co. Presents The first Time and this is our interview with loads of farms and Baralt Farms and we'll be starting off with Junior from Loza.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, so we've been the owners since 2006, but before that, we were employees. So my parents came here, well, my dad came here in 1976, my mom a little bit before that as immigrants to this country. And he started working at this hot farm, which at the time was called Stan Farms. And he worked here for 30 years. And then after the owners had passed away and no one wanted to take over in 2006, he ended up buying a place. So we start off as, as owners in 2006. Uh, we started off with 56 acres, uh, about nine days worth of hop harvest, and then just kind of grew slowly um, as we went from there. Yeah,
0: and this, the, I mean, there's so much that I want to kind of ask about, but like that journey from working on a farm to to ownership, you know, that that's a a big period of time. Was the dream always to own the farm or was it was it was it just through circumstance that it came to be like an opportunity that, that you couldn't turn down?
1: Um so for us, for the kids, uh it that was, was never in the cards, like we never thought of it like that. Um, like I said, we grew up as employees and uh as kids we didn't just work there. We worked a lot of farms doing, you know, regular labor. Um, you know, growing up, our our dad used to tell us that. The only thing he was gonna be able to leave us was the knowledge of how to work, you know, how to put in a hard day's worth of work. That's all he that's all he's gonna leave us. So that was never a thing. Um I guess my dad talked to it, talked about it a couple of times with his boss and his at the time, and his boss kept telling him that he didn't think that he'd ever want to buy his farm because the ups and downs. So he thought it'd be better for him just to work somewhere and never become an owner. Um, when when the farm was gonna be up for sale, I mean it didn't really get offered to us right away. Uh, it got offered to a different farm. And that farm was like, why are you offering it somewhere else? You have the perfect person to buy it and to run it right down the farm. And so that's when they offered it to my dad. Um, and that's what kind of got us started. And then once it got offered to him, he basically talked. At the time, it was just me and my brother and my sisters were still in school. And so he asked us, he said, you guys want to do this? You guys want to do it? Let's do it. If not, he's I have one kid left that's under 18. He's like, I can go get a job somewhere, you know, I'll we'll <laughs> finish raising her. I don't have to worry about it. He's like, but if you guys are willing to do this, let's do this. And we both said, yeah. And then slowly uh, my other sister uh, came back. And then my youngest sister, once she was, got done with college and worked a couple of years somewhere else, she came back. So now all four of the siblings work on the farm along with our parents. So, yeah. It was That's little, amazing, man. Yeah. It was a very lucky circumstance. Hops weren't worth much um mm-hmm. we had we having to be the right place at the right time and i mean he had the, the knowledge on how to be a farmer he didn't have the knowledge on on all the other aspects of it you know uh on uh, the financial side that was kind of a huge yeah. learning for him and my mom but but the farming side we always knew we could
0: do that because we've been doing it since you know a long time so can you kind of dive into a little bit of that transition phase of like because so the the farm was uh it was operating in two ways wasn't it it was hops and it was um was it livestock as well?
1: Yeah. So so when we when we bought the farm the farmer didn't have livestock we had cows. So my dad you know grew up as a farmer even in Mexico. So he'd been farming from a young age. So whenever he got the opportunity and his boss was cool enough that you know I mean if there was land that can be because there's farm ground that can be farmed you know whether it's canals. Uh, through it, or um, the ground is too, you know, acidic, or or to whatever if they can't grow crops. Um, he would let them turn into basically pasture, and so uh, growing up, that's what we did. We we raised cattle, um, not really in a traditional way, I guess, of how people raise cattle nowadays. Um, but we had uh, crossbred cattle that had a little bit of dairy in them, so they'd have more milk than what was needed. So what we'd do is we. Mm-hmm. Their milk cows and feed more calves with it or we have graft calves onto it and so that's how he had the capital to actually buy the farm was by having uh cattle enough cattle um that that the bank was like okay well you know this is enough capital that, that you can cover the farm but yeah so when we bought the farm it had a little bit of hay and it had some corn so it was a 120 acre farm that we bought 56 acres of it was was hops and the rest of it was either corn or hay And then, uh, you know, basically, we still do the same thing today. We have, still have cattle. We still have corn. We still have K, and we still,
0: you know, grow hops. Yeah, it's it's got slightly bigger the the hop part. It's It's grown a little bit.
1: (laughs) So, so last year during harvest, we were about 360 acres. For the last few years, uh, we've grown we've grown very slowly in comparison. Um, Our picking machine was very old. It was called a Ball style. Um, it was a very old picking machine. The electrical and all that stuff wasn't up to, to snuff. And so we didn't want to plant more than what we could actually pick uh, quality wise. You know, we wanted to make sure that mm-hmm. our product was quality, at the end of the day, um, all, all we were going to have was, you know, our name saying, okay, well, these guys usually produce a quality product. Everybody makes mistakes sometimes. Everybody has a bad ear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's deep, you might have bugs, you might have something. But as long as you're always, striving for a quality product um people will come back to you and so that's kind of our thing so instead of uh like when the when there was a big boom in 2008 when we could have planted probably double or triple our size in one year we didn't do it because we wanted to make sure that we could actually pick the crop that we needed to pick on a timely manner and so and we've grown slowly over the years you know 20 20 acres, 40 acres at a time, 50 acres at a time, and just grown slowly. And so we got a right now, our our peak that we've hit is about 360. We'll go down a little bit this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But our peak has been 360 in hops. Uh, We probably run, I don't know, 1,500 acre farm total. um, If you include pastures and stuff. Uh, Yeah. And and it it works out. It keeps us busy for most of the year. You know, if we're, yeah, man, we still have cows to feed. So.
0: yeah well that's it it was really interesting to read a little bit more about the uh the story of of the farm and and realizing that it's that kind of dual purpose um if you like go back into you like young junior were hops part of your working life back then and if so like what what kind of understanding did you did you have of them i guess was this at a time where they felt more commodity than they did specialized
1: yeah, so so when I was growing up, when I was growing up, uh, so I've always been around the hop farm. Obviously, you know, from a very yeah. young age. Uh, my very first harvest that I got paid for I was thirteen. Um, was the very first year. The first year I didn't do much. My job was to keep uh, the owner's grandson out of the picking machine. So uh, the grandson <laughs> wanted to make some money, and he'd never been around uh, a picking facility. You know, he was raised in the city, and so the concept was. I follow him around and if he's going to do something dangerous don't put your hand there don't do that you know Mm -hmm. stay that was my job the first year basically and then he didn't come back the following year um so i started bailing so i was a baler from when i was 14 till i was like 28 29 i bailed every year during harvest and so that was like the biggest part of hops for me uh the difference has changed from then to now i think is obviously craft brewers uh that's changed a lot so growing up even though we were employees, like I knew other other people, they knew that my dad was a, the the foreman, and so they'd be like, well, where do your hops go? You know what beers? Well, Anheuser Busch. You know those were the only that was the only brewery that I knew that our hops went to for sure because uh, our farm has been uh, Anheuser Busch grower since the '80s, and so I knew our wow. hops. our I knew our hops went there, but nowhere else. And so, uh, 2000 and I want to say 2007 or 2008. I met my first craft brewer. Uh, I met someone from Oscar Blues, and then I met uh, Doug Ellenberger from Everybody's. Uh, from Everybody's, Brewery. Um, I still have a great relationship with Doug. Uh, I visit him at least once a year, and he always comes back during harvest time. Um, and Amazing. That that changed my whole perspective. Uh, it was the very first time. The very first craft beer I had was was uh, Doug's from Everybody's, and. Um, uh, it was a mixed reviews. You know, when you're used to your palate is accustomed to one thing, and all of a sudden uh, you go from that to the next thing. It's 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 quite a shock. I mean, um, I'd never had an oatmeal stout before, and he gave me that. And mm-hmm. it was my cup of tea at the time. Now now I love oatmeal stouts. But at the time, you know, my palate wasn't up to that. And he was so cool about it. You know what I mean? He's like, hey, if you don't like it, don't drink it. He's like, I understand. It's not for everybody, you know. He's so And so he didn't put me off. right right at the get-go. And I think that's where my love for craft beer – that's why I enjoy doing uh, collabs with people and stuff like that. It's it's not just knowing where my products end up at the end, which is super awesome. You know, I see these things grow from zero inches to 18 feet in one harvest and then picking and stuff like that. Um, That's all awesome. But it's – I enjoy drinking the beer. You know, I enjoy – knowing that the product was treated, you know, the way it's supposed to be, it's it's amazing. And I think it all started right there.
0: If we go back into like your journey with it, meeting the brewers and starting to connect the dots between craft beer and hop production, did that really excite you? Did you start really wanting to dive further into the experimental side of, of hop production or, or really understanding varietals in a different way or, changing crops to kind of meet demand of, of different breweries?
1: Uh, so, so we've always been aroma growers, even when alpha was king, yeah. when, when, when alpha was huge and everybody was going crazy with alpha, we've always been aroma growers and uh, we I mean, we, I was raised when we, we grew tetanangs and, and Willamets and uh, Mount hoods, which is a lower yielding aroma crop that we enjoy growing um, and they seem to be less susceptible to to certain diseases and bugs out there. So we enjoy growing that. So when everything changed and all these different varieties that I come in, um, we have mostly stuck with aroma varieties. We have experimented on um, making new varieties. So we're, we're pretty new. I mean, like I said, yeah. technically I'm second generation because my parents own it, but i mean we're all first generation together we're all and so the relationship that we try to grow is more on connecting a good product whichever product that we grow to the people that need it and so we haven't we haven't experimented so much with the varieties what we have tried to do is try to focus on what we can grow and what we can grow well yeah and 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 push that and so what that means I need to fix my picking machine because I know that if I can pick it one day, finish picking it one day sooner, I'm gonna have a better product. That's what I'm gonna do. And we're lucky enough that we're small enough that we're picking when stuff's right. Uh, and yeah. like I said, we don't always hit the target like we're supposed to. Uh, we could be off, you know. Uh, and what I smell might be different than what you guys smell and what you guys are looking for. But we we try try to hit uh, the perfect picking window every single time. So that um, once you guys get the product, you guys are happy about it. Um, the selection product process for me is kind of uh, the good job to pat on the back. You know, whenever I see we got selected, or I get uh, quite a few brewers have my 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 number, and so they'll text me, "Hey, dude, we just selected you, you know, so and so place." Or, "Hey, man, I know you love this beer, and guess what? Your hops are gonna be in it." You know, what I mean, that's that's amazing. That, that right there, that's that's what we're trying to cultivate. Uh, we're not so much the the new riders Where what's the newest thing? It's more of uh, trying to focus on yeah. what we can grow and then try to do it the best we can. You know, I'm not opposed to it, and I'm not saying that that we're not trying to um, also. You know, if we see something weird growing out, I mean, we might leave it and see what it does. But right now, our focus is definitely on trying to get as much the best quality we can.
2: You
0: know. Well that's amazing man and Matt and Harry kind of visited you guys when they were out there I actually came out to the fields and smelt the hops and that's why we're doing the collab um, through Yakima as well because they were just blown away they were like these are these are amazing and Junior's awesome so you should definitely chat <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll tell you the the interactions between
1: brewer and farmer I think are super important And I mean if I have the same product as the next guy if we have the exact same product same exact quality then at the end of the day it's going to be like who do i like better you know who, mm-hmm. who who did i vibe better with and so even though harvest time is very busy i mean it's extremely busy for us we enjoy all the visits you know uh the more brewers come the better you know we always make sure we take time and them around now we don't want them to feel like you know they're in the way or whatever and so I don't did did uh did they make it to the to the to Mexican night at the farm or did they just come uh, during the daytime while we were picking? Did they make it to the party?
0: I think they just came when I'm not sure if they made it to the party, but they uh, they made it when you're picking and, and they managed to, to smell some fresh hops.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we we always do uh, um at the end of harvest. Not it doesn't not necessarily always when harvest is over, but usually at the end of we we started like in 2019 2018. With the Chief, we started doing this thing we called the Mexican Night because be, we we happen to be the only Chicano or Mexican-owned hop farm, and you know there's people coming from the same area where my dad was, and my mom were raised, you know, that were brewers. So, and so cool. Like, we were able to meet, and so we ended up doing like a barbecue, you know, tacos, whatever that first time, and they had a great time. So they did it. We did it again, and it's kind of progressively bigger. Where this year it wasn't so much Mexican Night, it was kind of worldwide you know we had people from all over There's <laughs> England and some people from from uh, from from europe and stuff like that that were there that night and so there were so many people that i don't remember who was all there you know so that's why i was wondering if if the guys made it out that night but no yeah people were, if you're able to make it out to yakima for whether it's hot brew school or it's for selection and you guys are on the area i mean Come hit us up. I mean, we'd love to show you around. Yeah. You know, we don't leave the farm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to go maybe eat dinner with you or lunch somewhere with you, but I'll show you around the farm, you know, and have a good time with you, you know, let you smell stuff in the field, let you still smell stuff out up in the kilns, and you know, so you can see the passion that we have that
0: equals the passion mm-hmm. that you
1: have as you guys brew.
0: Yeah. Well, it's amazing, man. And yeah, you kind of touched on that you the own yeah, Hispanic farm in, in the in the States. Yeah, so like
1: something I don't know, I'm guessing 80, 80% of of laborers in our area are are Latino-based, you know, and mm-hmm. we are the only ones. But like I said, it was just, you happen to be lucky when we bought the farm, hop farms weren't worth very much. 2006, you know, hops weren't worth anything, and so we were able to buy it extremely cheaply in comparison. Nowadays, and we I have some friends that that they've asked me, you know, that are in other states, you know, how would I do it? I was like, I don't know. Today? I don't know. I mean, it, everything costs so much. And to mm-hmm. start, especially start from scratch, we we were lucky. Even though our picking machine sucked, it was still a picking machine. It still picked tops. <laughs> I mean, slowly, you know, not very well, but it picked them. And so, like, it helped to start from somewhere. So we could build it from there. If we would have had to build a picking machine, we wouldn't be hot farmers right now. We'd just be doing hay yeah. and cow, corn,
0: where our initial investment isn't as high. But it's so cool, man. And I'm just getting a sense, like, like you said, it. This is relatively new for you guys. You know, like you talk. There's a, this is a journey that you're all taking as a family. That yeah, it sounds it sounds hard, but it sounds great in the same sense it's just like like what you said about your dad at the first thing he's like I'm going to teach you how to work like if that's one thing I'm going to teach you how yeah, to work yeah. can you can you kind of give us a little bit of a perspective of, of what it takes to 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 you know like push a hop farm forward um and to see it grow but to also keep the the quality that you need um
1: so we've been willing to change stuff uh as we go a lot of stuff that my dad used to do, when when he was the foreman, we don't do anymore. Uh, stuff has changed, um, you know, irrigation wise, uh, the way we grow stuff, the way we harvest stuff, um, picking wise. Uh, he always says that he couldn't go turn on the picking machine. My dad was the guy that worked on the picking machine forever. He's the guy that used to fix the picking machine. He will not go into the picking machine anymore because he says he doesn't recognize anything. So, wow! Innovating, innovating and changing and growing with uh, as things get better, um, I think is is probably the most important part on, uh, that you have to do while still keeping um, certain things that you know work. Certain there's certain stuff that you always done. There's a lot of things that we do on the farm that we do because we've always done it. Like people mm-hmm. will be like, well, "Why do you do that?" I don't know because we've always done that. You know, what I mean? and that's just worse for our farm, and and so it's a balance uh, of uh, doing both both those things at the same time uh, that has has benefited us. But I think the biggest thing that has helped us quality wise, I think it's the fact that we all we all love and live what we do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. So not only do we enjoy doing what we do, that's why we continue to do it, but we all live from here. You know what I mean? There's at least 12 families because I have certain employees that are here all the time. They all eat and live from this farm. And because we all eat and live from this farm, we want to make sure that this farm continues. And so if we want to continue, we need to have products. So that means that, and again, because we're small, and because there's four of us that are on the kids' sides that are driving around, you know, and checking stuff out every day, we have been lucky enough that we've been able to catch most of the time the stuff before it gets out of hand. And, you know, when we're going to go, before we go into a field, we do dry matter like everybody else does to see if we're ready to pick. But on top of that, we're all smiling good. well, what do you think? Do you think we should go to this field? Do you mm-hmm. think we should go to that field? And it's it's a conversation that is taken by, taking by all of us to make sure that it's not just, like I said, we all smell different things. And so we want to make sure that we try to produce. It. And it's, without without my family being as involved as it is, I don't think any of us are here at this point. Yeah, you know I mean, it, yeah. it is 100%. We've always been close, but the hot farm has definitely got us closer. I mean, if we weren't on the hot farm, I don't know where I'd be. I probably wouldn't be in Washington State. I'd be working somewhere else. You know? <laughs> Same thing with my sisters. I see my parents every day. I see my sisters at least four or five times a week. My nieces and nephews—they know me really well because they see me all the time. How many people can say that? Not very many no, it's nowadays. You know what I mean, no. I mean, Zoom and stuff like that—it yeah, works out great. You can see people, but but we see, live, fight, you know, laugh, cry together so much more often than most people do and why do we why can we do this because we are hot farmers because we farm together and live together
0: you know you're gonna make me cry in a minute that was amazing <laughs> you know that but you you actually kind of see the perspective of what a farm is and it's almost this like living organism that needs to be kept alive and it's it's yeah. down to the workers to, to to do that and and to be a family doing that And the things your dad must've seen, you know, coming as an immigrant to the States and then just grinding and working as hard as he could to the point of what it is now, you know, how does, do you, does he ever kind of reflect on that experience and, and the achievement?
1: He he tries not to, uh, whatever he thinks about it, he always gets teary eyed. If you ask him what he thinks of us doing, doing what we do now, he always gets teary eyed. Um, he, I mean, when he talks about it, he always says he never thought this is where he would be at today. You know, that was never in his wildest dreams did he think that, you know, they'd have what they have. And we always, I mean, we always touch on, on my dad because um, my dad was a foreman. My dad knew how to do all this stuff. But without the other side, without my mom, we're not here either. Yeah, you know I mean, my mom was the one that pulled the trip. Mom was like the one. My dad was scared. When they asked us if we wanted to buy it, my dad was like, Ugh, I don't know. My mom was like, "No, let's do it. We got this," you know. And she's always been the strong one in it, you know. And I mean, through health problems, through whatever, she's always, always there, you know, pushing all of us, you know, and bringing us together, and you know, breaking up fights when we're arguing too much, you know. It, you know, it's and, and you know, my dad. I mean, we almost weren't here. My dad got deported when he was like um twenty, something like that. Wow back to Mexico. He got deported back to Mexico and he was gonna go back home. He was just gonna go uh back home and say, screw it. And all the other guys that he was working with all had families in Mexico, like kids and stuff like that. My dad had no one but his parents, you know, and brothers and sisters. And and they were all coming back. And he he was like, How am I gonna be the only one that goes back to Mexico when everybody's coming back? They're all gonna struggle. So he ended up coming back and you know, this is where we're at now. So
0: yeah, that was kind of crazy. It's incredible, man. So, if we dive into like Junior's story within that, you know, I guess there's, you know, when you're a young guy, there's 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 pulls to go to different places. Americans, America's a huge place, so so many different states that you could go to. You could, you know, what was the point? Was the point where you kind of thought, you know, I'm done with this. I'm 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 gonna go find my way somewhere else, or was it always just like, no, I need to. I need to stay here and carry this journey on
1: no so so 2006 I was 24 or something like that so before that I mean you know I, I went to school whatever I didn't finish school but I went to school uh le- left left hometown to went to school somewhere else and had a lot of fun and stuff like that and then um it, I, I don't it was never a thought the minute my parents said that this is what they thought they wanted to do and asked me if I was willing to help. It was okay. Let's go. Uh, amazing. It, I, immigrant family. I think a lot of immigrant families are, are like this where um, because of the struggle, because of everything you go through growing up and stuff like that, I think um, there's a different kind of closeness um, mm-hmm. where you try to back up your parents because your parents always back you up you know i mean they they struggle to give you what you have um and so when when they need help you need to be there to help them so the minute they asked us i mean it wasn't a, a mm, let me think about it or how much am i gonna get paid it was never that it was always like yeah we can do this you know we'll figure it out and so at first year i mean my parents didn't get and, and any money we we paid the bills and I think profit-wise, I think it was like three thousand dollars profits that first year. And me and my brother made, I think, gross ten thousand dollars or twelve thousand dollars each that year. But we knew this when we started, and so we moved back home. We were living mm-hmm. with our parents and we ate at the house. And so we just all struggled, you know, including my parents, and you know, made it work that very first year. And then as as the farm improved, and I left for a year um it was like i said it was it was it wasn't great i still did harvest stuff like that but by the time there wasn't very many employees so i didn't have the role that i have now i was you know i drove tractor and you know i worked fields and i changed water or whatever like that so uh i went somewhere else for for a year um and then once they're like oh we're going to plant more i came back again right away and 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 been there ever since but um i don't I I can't see myself as long as my parents have this farm yeah. That or my siblings want to continue. I, I'm here a hundred percent. Yeah. Gung ho. Uh yeah. if yeah. one day my parents decide, you know what, we want to sell this place, uh, then we'll think of something else, and most likely I'll probably see if I can find a job on another farm. There's farming is hard work, but it's fulfilling. You know what I mean? You see um what you accomplish every day. It's not like, oh, I'm sitting on my computer, working on my computer all day. No. I plant something, it grows. I water something, it grows. You know what I mean? It You feed something, it grows. And so there's a sense of fulfillment every day. And so uh, maybe it's because I farmed since I was a kid, or maybe because my parents made me join 4-H, and maybe my kids made me, my parents made me do FFA, um, that farming has always been there you know did i want to be a farmer no probably not am i glad i am well one? oh, yeah 100 percent. i'm glad that my parents made me do the things i did even if i didn't think they're gonna be awesome when i was doing them i'm 100 percent glad that um everything worked out the way it worked and i hope i hope my someone in my family wants to continue uh i don't think I'll ever push any of my nephews or kids to want to keep farming if they don't want to do it. But the idea of this is, it's legacy. It's, it's something that is ours and it'll continue to be ours and, you know, hopefully forever. And so that, that's what makes you want to wake up in the morning, no matter what time it is. You know I mean? That's what makes you want to keep working afternoon when you're tired and, you know, it's getting dark outside, you know, it is what it is. You got to figure it out and, you know, My dad tells us uh, why wait for tomorrow when you can do it today, you know? And so that's kind of the way that he wants you to work every day. Whatever you can do today, as much as you can do today, tomorrow's a different day. You start something new. That's
0: amazing, man. It's so incredible. And I think, you know, just like highlighting the level of work that goes further into when people are enjoying that beer and and our collaboration, you know, to listen to this story and, and feel all of that and, to enjoy the beer hopefully we can do it justice you know because we want to take care of everything on our end to 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 honor the work that goes on further up the supply chain because it's it's amazing like hearing this story is is incredible and it it opens my eyes to um to something totally new and if we start looking at the future uh a loads of farms especially like how does the next 10 years look what what is it that you want to achieve and would like to see if you if, if you were to be in your dad's position now and look look back at it what would you like to see um
1: next 10 years or my next 20 years i think i think um i don't know uh as of right now i don't think hop wise we should ever be us personally should ever be more than 600 acres uh, farm wise i would like to say that in the next ten years, we were able to change our both our kilns and our picking facilities to um, have a higher throughput, uh, so that we're able to um, maximize our uh, our fuels or or power that we're using. Um, I w- I would like to have a program eventually where. Uh, we could use, do like interns and stuff like that, where more people can learn about what we do. And and so people can understand people that, you know, a lot of people don't know where, where food comes from, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't come from the grocery store. And so having like an intern program, where they can see that not all farms are bad. Not all people that use chemicals to spray are bad people. Not all people that raise beef to for for me are bad people. Uh, I would like, you know, and I I uh, I think that the best way for people to learn this is kind of a hands-on thing, you know. That's what I would like, and in the next ten years, it, it'd be great so that for more people to understand, you know, that side. I also would like in the next ten years for for a for it to be, um, for younger people to be allowed to get some of their work experience on farms so that they mm-hmm. are not set up to fail later on. I mean, I grew up working and I knew how to work. So when I went to go work somewhere, whether it was working in an office or working in a store or working wherever, I understood what work is like. But if you're not allowed... To ever have any job experience till you're 18, and then when you go get a job, they require job experience. How how do you have job experience if you've never been allowed to learn anything? And so I think a lot of the farming that is done is pretty safe, and people can have some experience that way. And I think internship, paid internship. Um, I'm not talking about you know slave labor. I'm talking about you know paying people a, a wage. So they can learn how to do stuff, and so they can learn where their food comes from, and and they can understand. I mean, my, it didn't work on me, but it worked on my sisters. My dad made us work hard, and then he was like, "This is why you want to go to school." It didn't work on me. My sisters went. To school. <laughs> you know, they they got degrees. They don't have to be on the farm if they don't want. To. It worked on them, you know. So he's got a fifty percent uh, efficacy with that. You know, it works out. So if That's that works amazing. for, if it works for everywhere by working a few summers hard. It makes you want to go to school and, you know, learn more. I mean, yeah, it could be great. And so I think all that stuff. And then obviously if I can make it so our footprint is is smaller and, you know, and I can keep working with great companies,
0: I think that's the biggest thing. I think I would be happy about all that. Okay. So now we're heading across to Peralt Farms to speak to Jason and Jeff. And Peralt Farms is where we selected our first lot of Citra from and recently released our beer Dreaming of DDH Citra, and it is beautiful. Okay, so you are listening to Track Brewing Co. presents the first time, and this is our interview with Jason and Jeff Peralt. Um, so I don't know who wants to kick off, but I'd love to get just a kind of um, not super condensed, but just the history of Peralt Farms.
2: Hmm. Right. Yeah, I can kick that off. So, um, so Peralt Farms really if we're you know stepping back in history i guess you could say that dates back to the early 1900s so the uh, and, and i'm really kind of equating for all farms to our family's uh, arrival in the yakima valley that mm-hmm. kind of started the, the history of of uh, our current farming operations and so our, our, our family did immigrate down through uh through uh, from Canada via Minnesota but ended up in the Yakima Valley in 1902 so Jeff and I's uh, be our great-grandfather he was about 18 at the time and his family was living in Minnesota and his his, his father and mother sent him out here uh, with his his brother to to establish the family in the valley so it's an interesting history we'll go into it now but there was actually a company that Alexander Graham Bell was involved in, in no her- way. Yeah, recruiting French Canadian families uh, from the Upper Midwest to move to the Akama Valley and begin farming, and so uh, there was a lot of these families moving over, and so you know the the Peral family was really no different and got uh, got that bug as well. Hopped on the train, and, and uh, anyways, Albrick was our great grandfather. He came out here and established the uh, the homestead in Moxie in the Moxie area, uh, which obviously is still very uh important in the hop world and uh started farming out there and they farmed you know mostly uh your your kind of traditional crops um out there until the the 1920s and then at which point i don't know i'm getting feedback here um but at at that point when they planted their first hops and so uh kind of the family itself it was a small farm in the family there's 13 children And, uh, they, uh, so that, you know, that, that's a, that's a lot of mouths to feed. And so they had, uh, I think they planted something like it was right around 13 acres of hops. So, you know, it's almost like they are growing children just as the workforce for (laughs) for this hop production. But anyways, the, uh, uh, you know, with, with that large of a family, all the, all the, uh, the sons and daughters, uh, you know, kind of had to go off and make their own way. And so our grandfather. Um, began uh, kind of a he had several different careers early on, um, but most of them revolved around um, farming. and he worked for some other hop growers uh, around the valley, and then uh, ended up uh, forming his own farm with his brother out in the Outlook area. And then in 1968 found this property we're on right now um, in near outside of Toppenish. And so he moved the family here then and uh, we've been here since and so amazing. after after he uh retired and uh moved on he sold the farm to our father and uh and then we've uh, jeff and i have been uh just jeff and our, our brother sam been involved in it for for a lot of years now as well so we're all fourth generation and we've got a number of fifth generation coming up so as part of the operation as well it's amazing so, man
0: it's amazing yeah. the the depth of history that goes into these places is always just blows my mind. And yeah. at that time, when did hops kind of become the prominent um, yield? I guess the, the prominent kind of revenue for for the farm was it was it agricultural? Like, did it have livestock as well, or, or was it always hop focused?
2: Uh, it's always been hop focused for us for 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 all farms as we know it today. Um, starting back in the nineteen sixties, uh, it was nearly a hundred percent hops. Mm-hmm. Uh, So this, this farm, when they purchased it, I want to say there was about 150 acres uh, of farmland um, and it was all in hops. And, uh, and over the years we've expanded, we're considerably larger than it now, but still um, the vast majority of our focus and our revenue and our effort goes into hops. We are, even though we try to diversify, for example, we have some organic blueberries and we have a small herd of bison and that's oh, cool. our, our version of diversifying. And then over the years, we've had, you know, we had organic pears for a number of years. We had a lot of apples for years um, and even cherries. Uh, throughout all of that, we were always a hop farm. Mm-hmm. We were always identified as hop farmers, you know. And so those, those, we had these efforts to diversify. But at the end of the day, we are hop farmers and that's where our passion is. And that's, that's, that's where our focus is.
0: And if you could talk about maybe Jeff, if you could kind of cover, so what was it to be a hop farmer in, in at that time because obviously there's a there's a really critical point that I want to get up to which I think it was like around 2000 which was the collapse. Yeah. Um yep. so what was it before obviously there wasn't as the craft breweries kind of wanting new strains all the time I guess it was a commodity product that was um yes. just something that you could produce over and over again and for huge breweries I guess. Um so what did it look like
3: That's a that's a really good question. Um, So uh, I graduated back in the mid 90s and the market did not look too sustainable at that point. You know, very commodity driven. Um, So I ended up leaving the hop farm and I. I, um, The craft beer movement um, back in the the mid 2010s really allowed a lot of a lot of farms to to. Um, you know, uh, gener- generate more revenue and it looked like more a more uh, sustainable uh, venture for me. So I came back to the farm uh, about 12 years ago and it was a, a great move. But yeah, it's um, the market is very different now. Um, I think one thing that I really appreciate about the craft beer movement is just um, that connection with brewers that growers have now and, and creating those relationships and those connections. Um, it's very common for brewers that come out during harvest which we appreciate and um yeah it's just uh, totally different it's no longer you know that commodity you've got an artisan who's building something beautiful with your product which is really cool
0: did your uh father like did he have any connection to the, the breweries and things that he was working with or was it very much just like we pick up on this day it goes to this place there's there's no kind of um synergy or, or or relationship there. Well that's
2: that is kind of way, the way the hop industry was traditionally. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's really where um you know our father along with the carpenter family and, and the Smith family started the Yakima Chief was out of that effort was that 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 acknowledgement that uh there isn't a connection. There's a divide between grower and brewer. The traditional hop industry was almost designed around that Mm-hmm. That buy sell you know buy low sell high model, um, and so there's always this this kind of separation, and uh, that's where they they stepped in and wanted to create that direct connection through the formation of Yakima Chief was to it's amazing to change that.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, the the, the story of uh, Yakima Chief is definitely something that I'd like to uh, to talk about more because it's an amazing it's an amazing initiative really. Um, people putting their heads together. I guess who kind of, it's maybe it's similar to the craft beer world where you're kind of competitors in one sense. You're both doing the same thing, but there's such a kind of cooperative nature of what we do, uh, and and relationship driven. Um, okay, can you can you take me to that that point? Because there's a really moving video. I think it's a Yakima Chief video of um, Peralt Farms, and you guys lost the farmer when it when when it got to its worst point. You actually had to kind of it went to auction didn't it and you no one bought it so you managed to get it back
2: yeah so that's uh it, it was it was a, it was kind of a close call you know that basically yeah the the in short the 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 banking organization we were with at the time did call a loan and were ready to basically foreclose mm-hmm. and the, the farm was put up for um a sheriff sale and, and uh And yeah, that, that was the, uh, the point we've gotten to, you know, it's kind of as close as you can get to losing it without actually losing it. And dad, uh, dad has a, um, you know, he he has a a sign hanging on his wall and it's in that video as well as I think, you know, and he, he talks about that, you know, that he'd gotten that sign from Tom Carpenter who just recently passed away, but Mm -hmm. that uh, sign says never, never give up, you know? And, uh, that's I I think if you could pick one kind of motto or or you know philosophy for our, for our father that's that's it it's just persistence never give up you know and uh, he he was able to secure uh, financing at the last minute with another lender and and, uh, and save the farm and it's interesting because it, right after that um, there was a you know the the infamous hop shortage of kind of that two thousand seven to two thousand nine period. That was a really uh, interesting time, you know, the, the price of hops, you know, went through the roof due, due to a, a shortage, whether, whether real or perceived in, in any given variety. But the fact of the matter is that that was so timely for us as an industry. I mean, you can make an argument that Farrell uh, Farms at the time was just kind of the, the example, you know, or, or kind of case study for, for an ailing industry and, wow. Had we not had that, that that shift in the market and that shift in the markets, you know, a product of, of an ailing industry. Right. As, as mm-hmm. going out of business and production was coming out, uh, of course, you're going to eventually reach a point where not there's not enough hops. And so, you know, just supply and de- basic supply and demand dictated that there was going to be a shift in the market. And when that shift occurred, it was timely enough that it really, I think, saved a lot of farms and preserved an industry because we're down to only. I mean, at the time we were probably down to 50 or 60 growers is all in the Pacific Northwest. And that's, that's not a very big industry, <laughs> you know, at some point if it, if it kept going, people are just going to either give up or they're going to be forced out. And that's really what was happening. So th- th- when that, when that did occur, uh, it was very timely and allowed us to kind of uh, uh, lick those, you know, financial wounds and, and, and heal. Mm -hmm. and get back into a good healthy spot and then craft beer took off and then that was a you know a game changer for all of us because it was it was such an opportunity to grow with another uh you know industry and uh and and really partner with another industry and and create create what what we have now
0: it's so interesting to think that like your dad at that time had no idea that this was around the corner like the the craft beer thing was going to happen it was just that he wanted to keep hold of the farm and keep doing what his family had been doing for generations. Yep. Jeff, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. I wonder if you could kind of um, dive into it a little bit more. What was that kind of um, first wave of craft beer breweries getting involved with the the hop farms like? Like what kind of, uh, who were the, the players at that time who really kind of helped push the, the hop industry forward?
3: Yeah. Um, you know, off the top of my head, Russian River comes to mind. Um, Vinny, Jason could probably answer this a little bit more in depth, but uh, uh, um come to mind also. So um, it kind of it kind of uh, evolved very rapidly, if I remember right. So we um, harvest went from maybe one or two tours of brewers uh, season to you know all of a sudden we've got. 300 brewers showing up uh, to come look at our facilities and and uh, and take a look at, at at what kind of quality we're producing. So um, yeah, it just seemed like it, it evolved very fast, very rapidly.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's amazing to kind of see and and hear. I mean, this is the reason we're doing this conversation is because Matt and Harry kind of came and saw you guys and were blown away with yeah. the hops and and the whole um, the whole place really. And, you know, for that, that was their first hop harvest. We were supposed to go and then COVID came and, you know, we're not a huge brewery, but it's such a pilgrimage. It's such a kind of like rite of passage yeah. to really understand, you know, you guys, what the work that you guys mm-hmm. do and also the product on a on a totally different level. Um, so with you, again, we briefly touched on it, but, uh, and I know that you're still pretty heavily involved, aren't you, Jason, with, with Yakima Chief as a whole, um, mm-hmm. I wonder if you could kind of just give a, a little, yeah, condensed, condensed history of how that came to be and, and exactly what it is. Right, right. So, um, uh,
2: you know, I alluded to it earlier that there was this desire, this vision to become connected. And that was really the the the, the vision of Tom Carpenter. He, for lack of a better way of putting it, he was frankly fed up with uh, what he saw as kind of a broken system that was not designed for, uh, a farmer to succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was really the farms were at the mercy of, of the, of the industry. And so he really felt, well, why can't we do this ourselves? Why can't we make, be that connection directly to the, to the brewer and at least have some hand in our own fate. Mm-hmm. And that really, that was, that was kind of Tom's vision. And he, he approached, um uh, you know, this would have been back in the in the late 80s. He approached my father and uh, and uh, Mike Smith at Loftus Ranches. And so our dad and Mike and Tom started these discussions around how could we how could we do this? And it really uh, uh, got a got the ball rolling to where they 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 started uh they purchased a, a cold storage warehouse and an office, and that was kind of the start of it. and And they started delivering, particularly focused on uh, high alpha at the time. You know, because it was a lot of different industry. This wasn't a uh, the U.S. hop industry was very much alpha driven at the time and not aroma driven. And so uh, they were focused on high alpha, and they purchased this warehouse and and started up a sales desk. So the warehouses was Yakima Valley Hop Storage, and then the sales desk was Sunrise Hop Marketing. And they started this effort that go out and direct make these direct connections they partnered with different hot processors in the industry uh, to create extract and other related products and uh just started getting out there and, it's and seeing how they could disrupt things and shake things up and, and and grab you know business and and that evolved over time uh in you know going into the the 90s then we uh a couple other efforts started up we purchased uh a farm collectively in the Granger area, which was Yakima chief ranches. So Yakima chief, the name Yakima chief, Yakima chief ranches has a long history in the Valley. Mm -hmm. It was actually at one time, the largest hop farming operation in the world that had locations throughout uh, the Yakima Valley. And, um, they purchased one of those farms with that still had the Yakima chief ranches name. And they actually purchased the name. Interestingly, it's an interesting story that I, that I don't know all the details, but, they approached uh, Dan Alexander, the owner of the farm at the time, and purchased the name Yakima Chief basically for a buck. And said, hey, well, No we'll way! <laughs> and so they purchased the name and, and logo and and uh, kept that farm. That farm was focused on alpha production. Alongside that in parallel, we had been working with Chuck Zimmerman for a number of years on developing new hop varieties, starting a, a kind of a, a breeding program on the side, so to speak, um, that was focused again on on developing. Uh, efficient new varieties and trying to get some level of competitive edge you know that's really the idea behind most breeding programs in, mm-hmm. in, in crops is you know kind of create some level of value through efficiency so that was really the focus and so these all these things were happening in parallel and uh the, the breeding program got folded into the farm operation and then on the and then we still were selling hops via sunrise hop marketing and, and the, the storage and processing side was the yakima valley hop storage well, in the '90s, there um, there was a point where uh, there was a recognition that we needed to cr- um, be able to process, you know, extract the hops our own, on our own, pelletize and extract the hops on our own, um, and so in order to do that, there had to be a, a large investment in um, uh, processing facilities and more, and additional storage facilities, and so in order to to uh, gain capital to do that they went out to other growers and that's where it started to grow beyond mm-hmm. just the original three growers. And that would have been around 97, 98, somewhere in there. Man. And, that, and they, they called that organization at that, and that's when they took on the Yakima chief name. And from there, it, it kind of, you know, it kind of grew up. And then over the years, they developed a relationship with another grower owned company, Hop Union, who, you know, anybody that's been craft beer for a while knows that mm-hmm. name. Cause um, it's, it was kind of the original uh, hop, seller into the, the craft beer that was very craft centric. You know, you could say Hop Union was the first one that really said, no, we're going to focus solely on craft beer. And uh, so they developed that relationship with Hop Union. And then by 2014, the two companies merged to form what we now know today as Yakima Chief Hops. So
0: that is wild, man. It's like this little punk rock movement to dis- disrupt an industry. I was, just, <laughs> I was just thinking then of like, do you think that it worked because farmers respect each other because they know the level of work that goes into being a farmer? Like cuz there's a lot of different people getting around the table there to to negotiate and you know that that feels like a hard thing to achieve but it feels like I mean it, it was achieved. Yeah, and I'll be honest
2: with you there's times when I think about it I'm kind of shocked it worked. Mm-hmm. And 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 the reason being is we're we're kind of uh an independent sort right farmers Gosh. you know and, and everyone wants to do their own thing and nobody wants to you know i i swear sometimes we'll do something just you know different from everyone else just because we want to be different even though <laughs> you know so we'll reinvent the wheel just 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 to, just to spy ourselves but the uh you know so so in a lot of ways you look at it and go man with the streak of independence that we have as farmers how the hell did we ever get that to work and i think at the end of the day it comes down to we are independent, but we are also neighbors and we work well together and we're all in the same boat. You know, when you're all in the, when, when you, when the the, the, when the ship starts sinking, it gets to a point where everyone's gonna start bailing, right, and bailing out water. And, and so we were all kind of in that boat together back then. And so I think in a lot of ways it did work, but that's, uh, you know, going back to those original years, it, it was not easy. There was, it, we were kind of the upstart. Um, mm-hmm. We weren't kind of the upstart, we were the upstart. It was very, uh, to borrow your term, it was very punk rock. And there was a lot of people that did not like what we were doing at the time just because it challenged the status quo to the extent that uh, there was several uh, uh, people in the industry or or organizations in the industry that uh, did not like the, the idea of the disruption. And most of the time, we were placed in the camp of it'll never work. It'll never work. You'll never get there. And again, comes back to persistence, you know, persistence and and just uh, uh, doing uh, doing doing it with passion and, and getting through. so, so cool man there's there a lot a lot that's... of lean years a lot of lean
0: years. Yeah, that uh, it's amazing. It's, it, the analogies are just endless as well with brewers because I always say, you know I never was a was a brewer. I, I kind of got into the the front end. you know I loved being around people and p- seeing people enjoy the beers and stuff that kind of thing. But you know brewers they, there's a reason they go into like dark uh warehouses and stuff it's because they don't want to really like speak to people and like be but then when they do come together there's a a beautiful kind of cooperative nature so it's you know the farmer to the brewery is probably not not such a distant step really um Me too really well, interesting with
3: the, the hop industry it's kind of unique that we're kind of all centralized in one location so um you know we're growing up with other growers' kids that are that are hop growers and so it's so a, cool. a pretty tight knit community for the most part. It's kind of the hop industry is kind of unique in that sense and I think that probably really helped that that movement quite a bit. I don't think you would see that in a lot of a lot of commodity driven markets no, for sure.
0: Absolutely not so, yeah that's yeah, the when you when you when you're effectively a a competitor but you manage to see the bigger picture and pull yeah. together is is incredible. Yeah. Um so going into like hop growing, I think there was a term, and again, I've used this with with brewing and and and, and regularly ask brewers, but science and art. Uh, I think you spoke about it, Jeff, in the video. Just like <clears throat> what what parts do those play in 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 producing hops? Yeah,
3: there's um, there's definitely definitely a science behind it. Um, a big portion of it is, is science, but um, you know, there's also the art form. The uh, it, you know, training, training hops, and and uh, training on the right date. And, and um, I think it's really interesting to look at someone like my dad, who's and even Jason, who's been in the industry for so long, and and being able to you know just fill a kiln and 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 tell the the approximate moisture content of the whole kiln, and that's that artful portion behind it that I, I really respect. And it takes, you know, obviously years and years to get there uh, before you really understand it. But I think now with technology and, you know, big data, um, we are kind of moving towards uh, building efficiencies with uh, the science portion of it too. But you, you, you will always have that art form behind it. And I think with hops, um, uh, you have to have that human touch to get mm-hmm. them growing, you know, to your individual, you're touching every individual vine and, and fixing it up the string so there's uh, definitely kind of an, an intimate relationship there between the the growers and the uh uh, uh the hops themselves uh, you, ha- you have to have that human touch that art form behind it so um yeah it's 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 a, a really fascinating industry
0: yeah I, I love that side we had um i'm not sure if we actually came and worked with you guys brent from mac hops um, from a New Zealand hop grower and he was saying that yeah that human connection to his product someone he'd, he'd have someone come smell he was like man these are amazing like th- th- are they ready and he's like two more days like oh he, he was so precise in, in how he thought about it and just his yeah. feel for how the weather had been and how the crops had responded and all that kind of stuff is it, is beautiful and I guess having these conversations is trying to convey to to the drinker just again that level of work that that goes further up further up the chain and we're so
3: there's so many variables and we're so uh we're so dependent on mother nature you you almost have to have that that artful um, outlook on things you know you have to be able to change be very nimble in your operations so um you definitely can't set things in stone and and yeah. you, you, you've got to be very nimble
0: yeah i guess sure. the climate does not stay still for sure, not these I mean, days. It does not. <laughs> it does <laughs> not. Um, Jason, um, you spoke about the hop kind of drought that led to to changes. I read some articles recently, which were kind of saying the opposite that that maybe we we're facing a hop uh, surplus. How mm-hmm. do you kind of kind of how do you balance, balance. Um, what you do? Like and 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 are you seeing things change in a different direction now? with a brewery's closing more, like, was there a boom? Is there a bust? Yeah. How's, how's it kind of panning out at the moment?
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a, a lot of million dollar questions in there. Right. And we're mm-hmm. still trying to figure out where a lot of this is going to fall, but we're certainly, we're in a situation where I do believe there's a level of overproduction uh, in the industry um, that we, you know, kind of got out over our skis a bit and that that's some somewhat driven by, uh, you know, things like COVID, mm-hmm. uh, and, and what the, the, and not just COVID directly, but even just like the shift, you know, the, the change that COVID caused in, in behavior, you know, in terms of how we, how beer drinkers, uh, you know, or how consumers are consuming, um, alcohol and, and other related products. So we're, we're in a more competitive beer is in a more competitive space. So there's headwinds in the beer industry that then translates down to hops. And, and so I think in a, in a lot of ways, craft brewers um, maybe haven't been hitting the growth numbers that they originally said. So even though we were all heavily contracted, uh, nobody could foresee the headwinds that were coming because COVID was such a disruptor and it just kind of hit a reset in a lot of ways. And so, so, so because of those unknowns, and you're all very, you know, you're very aware of this and, and everybody's painfully aware of this and, and so we're, the result is that, yeah, we're, we're in a situation where as an industry, we're uh, a, a, on the long side. The key will be to be proactive and adjust. And that's really where we're at as an industry is, is, is not just sitting back and saying, okay, we're just going to let this ride and see where it goes. To actually make adjustments to try to bring things back into balance, because it's very important to us all as an industry. And I'm talking, I'm talking you know, uh, hop growers, but uh, brewing industry as well to make sure that, uh, you know, we maintain that health in the industry and that balance, uh, because those old boom and bust cycles uh, will not work in my opinion, in this modern brewing age, because we're looking at a situation where, you know, when I got into, uh, so I I've been full-time into hops since the mid nineties and, um, when we hit, you know, we hit tough, that was a tough patch. First few years of my, of, of my, my first years in the industry were very tough. It was a rough market, uh, but I'm very happy and fortunate that, that I got to experience that because by the time we hit that shortage in 2007, 2008, where you saw this massive spike in hop price, uh, our father at the time told me, you know, take note of this because you get two of these in your career. So you get, That's he so goes. My, my, my last, my last big price spike was in 1980, and so you know we, we were kind of talking, having the conversation, tongue in cheek, you know, because we were, you know, situation. So I said, well, so what you're saying is I've, I've entered into a career where we get to make money twice, and the rest of the time we're just trying to get by. And he said, <laughs> yeah, it's the case. Now what's interesting about that is if you look at those price spikes, they're 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 not small price bikes, you know, these, the price of hops get up into, you know, you take a, a really poor quality aroma hop, be selling in the $25 per pound range. Wow. And you know, that, that's, that's really kind of ridiculous. Right. And that's not a sustainable deal. So back traditionally when you were dealing with just larger multinational companies, they could weather such a thing because they're carrying inventories. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of these guys back in the, uh, the pre craft days were, were carrying Sometimes 18 months to three years worth of hop inventory on purpose to weather such things. And then they were balancing the rest out of our contracts. So a spot market that hit that level really had minimal impact on them. And in fact, you can argue it was very beneficial to them because the rest of the time they were able to get hops, you know, cheap, mm-hmm. you know, as cheap as they wanted. And so uh, if you look at the small brewer now, though, a small brewer now that has to go out and buy in a spot market that's that high, it could be a killer. That's yeah, going to change their their uh, their their situation considerably. And so we're better off to create that stability in the market. And that's really our goal now uh, as a production system, as a supply chain, is to say, OK, how can we be proactive and, uh, and, and adjust and, and be flexible with the market? And so that's what we're having to do. And so as growers, for example, this year, I think uh, Peralt Farms will be taking, you know, the numbers are still dialing in, but it's going to be about a 17 to 20% reduction uh, Mm -hmm. in our I think across the board in the industry, uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, something similar. And it's just because there isn't room to grow these things on speculation. You know, we could we could certainly try to grow the hops on speculation, but they're just going to sit in a warehouse, building up inventory, mm-hmm. and be worth next to nothing. Because uh, the fact of the matter is, if there's too many hops, there's too many hops. Mm-hmm. You could you could drop the price to next to nothing, and nobody's going to buy them because they don't need them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's kind of where we're at. And I think the idea now is to be proactive and not go back into that whole commodified boom and bust boom. cycle boom. Um, and, and and maintain the- value.
0: Yeah, it's 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 so interesting because it's kind of like two climates, isn't it? You're you're literally dealing with the the climate, climate, and then the climate of consumption as well. So there's like these two areas which you're trying to predict and trying to work with that are, you know, like you said, the million dollar questions. No one knows. Like no one would have foreseen COVID. No one would have foreseen um, that kind of uh, fluctuation in the industry. And I think it's similar within the within the breweries as well. You know, there was a there was a big boom and a big surge. And then everyone starts kind of leveling out, and hopefully, again, you find something that is sustainable, um, long term. Long term, sorry. Um, So, thank you so much for spending your time talking to me, guys. I really, really appreciate it. It's so fascinating. I could, I could definitely go on for hours, but I won't keep you for too longer, um, too much longer. Um, So, if we kind of look, we kind of maybe covered it a little bit there, but if we try and look five years into the future of the hop industry or 10, 10 years into the future of the hop industry. What kind of stuff do you th- foresee? Um, is it going to follow a similar pattern to what we've seen? Um, there was one like thing that I wanted to touch on, which is like organic hops. Would they play a bigger part in the market? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I- I'd be interested to get both of your, your takes on it. Who- whoever wants to take that one first.
3: Yeah. I think, um, <clears throat> I think the organic movement is a, uh... Uh, a a good point to raise in this in the next five years, just because uh, our MRLs are changing. And um, I think, uh, you know, at least on our farm, we are making a big push to uh, increase our sustainability efforts when it comes to chemistries used and uh, utilizing more uh, beneficial insects and mitigating our chemical usage, um, uh, one, for environmental reasons, and two, um, it's just there's a, the economic, the economics of mitigating costs. So, um, but yeah, I, I definitely see that in the next, the next five years uh, for sure, um, which, um, you know, it's a learning process for us. You know, every year we're, we're learning new things and, and bettering our practices. So um, I, I definitely see that.
2: Yeah, I think Jeff's right. You know, I, I as I look at the next five years, I I think uh, clearly, uh, craft beer, particularly in North America, and then increasingly so over over the the pond there is is you know a maturing market. So I think we're going to see some stability. I don't I don't think it's a, a bubble that's going to burst. I think I think it's it's here to, you know to stay and there's going to be stability and we we can settle in with that. And so yeah, I think we'll make our adjustments on the market side to reflect that. Um, So I'm confident about that future. Uh, But I definitely think, uh, you know, issues uh, like climate change, uh, economic pressures and so on are going to drive us to be more efficient and make better use of our resources. And uh, so I think you're going to see further product development in terms of, uh, you know, hops are an incredible plant. Um, if you really think, start to think about the the sheer number of compounds that that plant is producing from a flavor and aroma standpoint. Um, it, you know, it it never ceases to amaze me. And and the reality is, is I think we're as much work as we've done, even just our program over the last uh, you know 30 years in developing new varieties. I think as a as an industry, and I'm talking as an industry of brewing industry, we're just now starting to scratch the surface on what kind of flavors and aromas we can pull out of hot plant uh related plants, you know synergies between other terpene and 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 flavor compound producing plants um, and and then yeast as well and so there's this whole kind of i think new uh burgeoning field in flavor and aroma that's really exciting. And I think that we'll, we'll see some developments in the next five years that will impact that. And a lot of that's going to be driven, like I said, uh, by us striving for being more efficient with our resources, being more sustainable uh, and having a, a lower impact on our environment. And organic is certainly a part of that. You know, I, I, I think, uh, I, I get really excited about organic production. I honestly think it's, it's, uh, it's got a solid place in the future. And it's not, uh, but I think it goes beyond looking at it from an organic standpoint. I think it's more of a, this is the evolution of our production system. And we are going to be heading towards a more organic like system, even if it's not full on certified organic. So I, I, I for us, uh, I really value the fact that we have organic acreage. It's a tough one right now. It's not a huge market, but uh, what we're learning from that is I think going to be incredibly important towards our future. And uh, so we're pretty excited about that.
0: And that's it. Another episode done. A massive thanks to Junior, to Jeff, to Jason. Um, I really hope you enjoyed that one and I hope you put up with the production okay. Um, Yeah, I had to kind of copy little bits from all the other podcasts and try try and get the music going but you know we got there in the end um yeah so we'll be back with another episode soon but for now stay thirsty